the whole approach of positive psychology is using your strengths and your values to inform your life. And so if you wrap your strengths and your values around the way that you do life, the the career that you choose, the business that you build, the relationships that you nurture, all of that is going to improve your well-being overall. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode number 220 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope that you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyotsuka.com. You know, my purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. And in the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something. Not one. So, of course, I am just delighted to introduce you to our guest today, Angela Raspis. Angela Raspis is a self-leadership coach and facilitator, retreat leader, author, speaker, and podcaster in Sydney, Australia. Her work with women blends positive psychology, neuroscience, acceptance commitment theory, mindfulness, and neurodivergent creativity, and has helped women take the reins in their business, career, and life. She has been doing this work for 20 years. She's also the author of Your Next Chapter, Ditch Your Doubt, Own Your Worth, and Build the Business You Really Want, and lives in Bayview on Sydney's northern beaches with her husband, daughter, and very cute cab. Cavoodle? Yep. <laughs> Cavoodle. With her That's very cute Cavoodle <laughs> Remy. What a great name. You know, I didn't realize that. Is that a, it's a, a boy? Yes. Cavoodle? Yeah, he's a boy. I didn't realize that Remy was one of your names. That was actually one of the names that uh, we were thinking about for um, Teddy because he kind of reminded me of the little rat from Ratatouille. Yep. <laughs> so Angela, welcome. Did I get all of that right? You got it. Actually, it's quite funny when you sit back and listen to somebody else introduce you and you go, oh, wow, is that me? <laughs> 
I hear that over and over and over again. And I think that it's even more true for ADHD women, right? Mm, absolutely. We don't even realize how accomplished we actually are until we have to sit down and take the time to listen to all of this. Mm. So can we talk about your ADHD diagnoses first? Absolutely. It took me by surprise, to say the least. I just turned 54 a couple of days ago. and Happy I birthday. was Thank you. I was diagnosed in June, July of last year of 2022. Um, a good friend that I, there's a big place called Narrabeen Lake that we have this huge walk around, eight and a half K a couple of times a week. And she was diagnosed about 18 months ago. We're great friends, but she's very different to me, different personality type. And she kept saying, I think that you have ADHD. And I'm like, totally dismissive. Like, no, I did well at school. I was fine. Mm -hmm. And she'd just go, hmm. And when we have our conversations and we reflect on them now, she'd often pepper in, oh, there it is again. Oh, there it is again. And it would actually, it actually annoyed me a bit. And then and then um, my daughter was diagnosed and I started, um, she was diagnosed at 19 and I started reading through all the symptoms and all the things and started going, ooh, ha, mm. and I really couldn't deny it. And I had another chat with my friend and she gave me the feedback as to what she saw. And then I have another good friend in New Zealand who works with neurodiverse people all the time and I funnily said to her, well, I thought it was funny. Oh, and Karen thinks I've got ADHD. Ha, ha, ha. And she didn't laugh. <laughs> she went, <laughs> she went, well, I do see a lot of this, the neurodiverse um, strengths whenever we work together coming to the fore. And I was like, oh, uh -oh okay. So I went off and I sought a diagnosis and it took a wee while because my parents in New Zealand are both, they separated years ago, but they've both unfortunately developed dementia and I mm. can't ask them the sort of questions. And we actually went digging through my um, school reports because my memory was, I was fine, absolutely great, great marks, et cetera, et cetera. But I had missed all the comments from the teachers and yes. I was sitting there going, oh my goodness, Angela needs to remember that there's more than just her in the class. Angela needs to needs to think through things before she acts. Angela needs to take more care when checking her work. And, and on and on and on. And Angela I was needs to stop talking. That was, was the one I have over and over. <laughs> I was gobsmacked. And it was like, oh my goodness. So I took this back to the psychiatrist and he went, there you go. But then we had another twist. Because addiction is has played a large role in my background, mm. which I'm more than comfortable to talk about, and I now understand the role that ADHD plays in the cycle of addiction. I've been sober for 16 years, but because of that background, the psychiatrist had to have me see an addiction specialist to make sure that you know, the, the strange way <laughs> that my brain works was because of ADHD, not because of addiction issues from the past. And also a psychologist, a, a beautiful narrative psychologist I've been working with helped me understand the trauma that happened in my um, younger years as well. So there was a real mix of things that needed unpicking before we could definitively say, yes, ADHD is the thing, or one of the things as well. So getting the diagnosis took it took a while, but um, it was definitely worthwhile because it's changed everything. So, how did you feel when you were diagnosed? 
it was an interesting mix of emotions. And I think there's a little bit of um, a cycle that I know I went through and speaking to, <laughs> makes me laugh now, about five of my closest friends have all been diagnosed lately, birds of a feather. Yeah. There is this this sort of shock at first, like, seriously? And then there's elation, like, oh, my God, this explains so much because until, like, it's like a fish swimming in water. You don't know that you're swimming in water. I had no idea that so many of my habits, so many of my what I thought were personality quirks, just as my husband has always said, it's the way you're wired. And I just accepted that because I didn't know any different. But now, having listened to your podcast, read a lot, just done my own deep, hyper-focused dive into it, I'm just ticking all the boxes of so many things that I thought were just bizarre about me are actually part of this ADHD experience in our way, the lens through which we see the world and experience the world. So then I went into anger. I was so cranky. Why didn't someone see this all those mm-hmm. years ago, it would have saved so much grief, I assume, because, yes. you know, you never know. You just make all these assumptions. And so there was a lot of sadness and looking back and seeing all the balls I've dropped through life and recognising or, you know, I can't say that they're all because of my ADHD, but there's a lot of things that I can understand now in retrospect that caused or at least contributed to some of these disappointments and difficulties. So I was sad. And now I've moved into acceptance and am focused now on getting the support and putting the structures in place with a lot of self-compassion that will allow me to thrive in this next chapter. And that includes medication and that includes, uh, as I said, a beautiful um, narrative psychologist that I'm working with. And I'm about to start working with an ADHD coach as well to help me sort of work my surroundings in terms of the way I work as a business owner so I can be a little more organized, shall we say. (laughs) (laughs) So once you knew it was ADHD and you now Mm -hmm. had the benefit of hindsight, Mm -hmm. what were some of the symptoms that you had always wondered about when you had no idea it was ADHD, but now you recognize them as, oh, duh, it was ADHD. It was clear. (laughs) Well, the biggest one for me, I was diagnosed as combined type, but the biggest one for me is impulsivity. Just like that idea of time blindness, there's either now or not now. And that is me to a T. Once I get an idea, it has to be put into action immediately. And that has got me into a lot of trouble. Not trouble by, you know, if you go by the dictionary definition of it, but just getting down a pathway and then going, oh, hell, how did I end up here? Why didn't I stop and question this? Particularly with my business, because I have, I've always called it popcorn brain because ideas are popping all the time, but not pausing and actually looking at those ideas and being discerning in rel- and like looking at them compared to like my strengths and my values and is this what I really want to do? I never really paused and questioned things before I acted on them. So one of my, one of my strengths is action, which is not surprising, but you can be in the balcony or the basement of a strength. So when I'm in the balcony of it, it means I don't procrastinate. But when I'm in the basement, it means I run down seven different, you know, pathways in the first three hours of of the day and I'm exhausted and I overwhelm people. So that impulsivity, buying stuff that I don't really need because I don't pause and think about it, 
I, I got three copies of one book, just as an example, because I forgot that I already had it <laughs> and things like that. So, yeah. so that impulsivity has been huge um, and that inability to really estimate time. Like I'll assume something's going to be really quick and it takes longer. Really bad working memory. My, my family just laughs at me all the time. I lose my mind, like what my train of thought, my glasses, my keys, my what, everything. I'm lucky the children are still around. Probably would have left them in a, in a parking lot somewhere. So that's really typical for me. And another one which I didn't understand until now was my caffeine addiction, like huge Red Bulls, Diet Coke, and I had no understanding that I was self-medicating. Like I would drink half a dozen soft drinks a day. And now I've not had one since I started taking medication, which blows my mind because um, I was convinced I'd be drinking that for life. So so the medication the sort of is what changed it? The medication has definitely and- helped, yeah. Because what I've noticed, Tracy, is that I was ruled by um, almost like a compulsion like a sense of urgency. Uh, We've probably, a lot of us have read about that idea of feeling like we're driven like a machine. I didn't identify with the machine side of things, but if I pause now and consider, there was that underlying sense of urgency about everything. Nothing could wait. Everything had to be done. If not now, then 10 minutes ago. And that's an exhausting way to live. And the medication it's done a couple of different things. Number one is it does seem to have reduced the desire for caffeine. I've got no need for it now. It seems to have taken away that compulsive, urgent edge, which which really flavoured my entire life. And I think a third thing that's happened, which was I didn't even realise was a thing, RSD, that rejection sensitivity dysphoria, it was for me, that manifested in this feeling of never measuring up, never being good enough, you know, discounting any achievements I had made because they weren't big enough or bright enough or awesome enough or impactful enough. And everyone's judging that and thinking I suck. So obviously I do. And there has been, that's a thread that has run through my life as well. And I understand that it is also tied back to trauma, which can give a a very shame-based identity but um, which also runs you into addiction, which was where I went for many years. So there was such a mix of things and the medication seems to have dialed that down. And the last one that I've really noticed is the, or two things actually, one is the ability to stay on task. I can get distracted, but then I can look at the distraction and say, no, thanks. I want to get this finished. Like that is freaking revolutionary. And the last one is what I call the minions. So, you know, those little yellow dudes, the minions from Disney. So when I used to wake up in the morning, the minions would go, hallelujah, she's awake and start throwing ideas at me. And we're going to do this. And how about this? And how about that? Just nonstop. And like, that's from the second I would wake up. Now it's like they all line up in a row and wait their turn. (laughs) It's like my brain is quiet. I had no idea that a brain could feel like this. I still marvel at it every day and it's been, you know, six months on med so far. But it's like it's peace in there, which I never, ever, ever had. It's amazing. So did you um, have success with the first medication you tried or was there a bit of a learning curve? (laughs) I've had to, I've I've heard this um this question with a lot of people on your show. For me, I was one of the lucky ones, and I'm eternally grateful. I um, take Vyvanse, 
and we started on a very low dose, just the 30, and we've adjusted it. I've just started in the last couple of weeks on 50. We did 40 in between because I found on the lower doses that the impulsivity and the ability to ignore distractions would wear off at about 3 o'clock and I'd be back in you know chaos zone. And the 50 seems to have really – it's the right combination for me. But there's also, I think, another piece to this which is really important because I understand medication doesn't work for everybody, but I'm really fortunate. I've had a six-month sabbatical. Um, It's a long story. I won't bore you with all the details, but there have been a lot of mental health pressures in my family with family members that being the mum and the wife, you're sort of the one that it often falls back on. And I was very burnt out. There have been almost five years of different mental and physical health challenges with different family members. And so I was lucky to take six months off. And that's when I was diagnosed because I had time to actually look at what was going on for me. And I also started working with a naturopath and I've really cleaned up my eating. So I am, I'm actually prioritizing myself. That's what I managed to do, which as a busy mother and wife and and business owner, I'd never really done. So I'm eating really well. I'm drinking lots of water. I've brought in exercise. I, I totally resonate with your idea of how exercise is so important to you. I've been to the gym this morning. You know, I'm not doing anything over the top. Like I used to have this go hard or go home attitude. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? Well, I'm now able to see it as part of the big picture, as in instead of, look, you've got to lose weight and you're lazy and and get your ass to the gym, excuse my French, it's more like I want to stay healthy, I want to be flexible, I want to have choices as I get older and to do that I need yeah, relatively, because I'm not trying to win any awards, fit and healthy body. So I really believe that bringing in those lifestyle changes have made a big difference. And because I'm not running on the adrenaline that used to fuel everything, I can just not be so crazed. It's it's it really the whole experience overall has been really revolutionary. But I think there's so many pieces to it. It's not just a take a pill and you'll be right, mate. Absolutely. So you know, changing up your your diet, your nutri- you know, the nutrition that you're getting, mm-hmm. drinking water, exercising, how does your brain feel different? What did that do? And was that something that you did, you know, for short periods of time and then you'd kind of fall back to <laughs> like how bad was your diet? How bad was how, your how did, um Are you fitness? in the room? Are you what are you in my kitchen? Are you looking? <laughs> Very much like the it was the best description is to go hard or go home. I would find a new thing that was going to be the thing. And then I would be committed utterly. This will change everything for three weeks. That was my average burn cycle, three weeks of doing this thing, which will change my entire world. And then I would just lose interest and wander off or get frustrated, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's had a lot to do with well, A, yes, my brain wiring, you know, I'm, I'm wired for fun and interest and novelty. And after three weeks, nothing feels fun or interesting or, or novel when you're just restricting. But it was also this ability to go up to a higher level now rather than just look down at the ground level. Like I was in the weeds before every day. And now the, the medication has allowed the space for a bit of reflection. I've always been a journaler. You know, self-awareness is, is a really high strength. But this whole blindness, because I didn't know what I didn't know. I was an unconscious incompetent until I started learning about the impact of the ADHD. And so this 
new way of, of fueling my body. I'm looking at it like that. And I also use a tiny habit concept, which is I'm the kind of person who. Mm, yes. So, so I talk to myself like that now. I'm the kind of person who. Made it who. an identity. Yes. And, and a, a little trick I'm sure I heard from you as well, which is I put my gym gear out or my walking gear out the night before. So it's the thing I see when I first get up in the morning and it's become a habit. And then I congratulate myself, like self-talk, the way that we talk to ourselves, that internal dialogue is such a resource and so important. So, you know, I'll be on the stepper, which is really hard. I don't find it easy going, look at you. You're back here again. That's the voice, the right, in, yeah. your, in your brain while you're working yes. out. I love it. Yes. Where the other voice, you know, what I call, I believe everyone should give their inner critic a name and like personify her so that they can see, almost have a little bit of separation between who you are and the thoughts that your brain delivers. So Helga. And it also makes it funny, right? So you kind of then laugh at that. It loose, it lightens it up a bit. And Mm -hmm. so I apologize if any of your listeners or yourself know a Helga, but that's the name, that's the name of my inner critic, horrible Helga in high heels because she used to trample all over my dreams. And so Helga starts to say, yeah, but you only did 10 minutes and you're supposed to do 15. It's like, yeah, thanks. Could you just go and do your knitting over in the corner? I'm here. I'm doing it. I'm rocking. So that's been a real habit formation because the way that I used to talk to myself many years ago, especially before I um, was in the recovery movement, was toxic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you've got toxicity in your own head every day, what are your chances of embracing change and backing yourself? It's really, really low. So that part's been incredibly important as well. You know, I don't know why this is, but I am telling you, 90% of the women, that come on this podcast and have had success with medication, whenever I ask, because I'm always asked to ask, right? (laughs) Everybody wants to know, well, what has worked for her? And again, just because it works for you doesn't mean it works for someone else or someone Mm -hmm. like me. However, Vyvanse is the one that is always called out for, I'll say older women, but I mean women that are 40 and over, which, you know, to me isn't old, but... I don't know what it is about Vyvanse, why that seems to be a medication that so many women are so successful with. Yeah, I've heard the same. Like I have several friends who have started using Vyvanse over a different medication and it seems to be the one that that has helped them. I mean, again, touch wood, and as we just said, you know, asterixes, not for everybody, but it it certainly seems like I, I consider myself incredibly fortunate that that's the one that I was put on and that's the one, you know, that worked. It's like a little bit of a miracle, bit of a God job. <laughs> and I should point out that it doesn't work for me. So <laughs> I'm not even sure why I'm saying this other than, you know, it's just something that I've noticed over the last, you know, four years, whenever I ask, it almost always seems to be by Vance when, mm. you know, with my guests. So before ADHD, had you been misdiagnosed with anything? No, no, that's, um, I mean, I, I had a bit of episodic depression when, which was about the stress that that I was under, with taking care of other people. But you know, one of my strengths is optimism. Like mm, I'm, and very I, yeah, which is which is a delight. And so I didn't feel that I really was suffering from depression. I was also in, like going into menopause, so there mm. was a real, <laughs> it was a real, yes interesting box of toys to play with there but um got a great doctor etc so i take hrt which i think has has helped now as well 
Mm-hmm. Um, Hormone so replacement no. therapy. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I use, I use an HRT, which we'd researched well, and it seems to, you know, well, it got rid of the hot flashes within a week. So I love it. <laughs> that was life changing as well. Um, but no, nothing, nothing else has really come forward. I'm, I'm pretty healthy overall and you know, mentally and physically. Touch wood. <laughs> yeah, I know. So what has actually changed for you since you were diagnosed? There's so many things. Oh my goodness. It's, it's, um, I'm trying to think how I can actually summarize it without taking too long. The biggest thing, and I was talking with a friend um, yesterday, we had breakfast together and I touched on it before. It's the sense of, there's a bit of peace going on now. Mm. So I guess there are so many things that have changed. There's so many aspects that have changed. And now that my self-awareness is more dialed up, I'm noticing you know, new things that are happening. And I'll go, whoa, I didn't used to do that. Who is this woman is is one of my phrases. But the main piece, and I was discussing this with a girlfriend yesterday, is the dialing down of that sense of urgency. It's that ability to have a pause button, which I did not used to have. So there can now be discernment and choice where I don't feel like I was often at choice in the past. I was at like cause and like what was going on, what was impacting me, mm-hmm. I didn't really have the reins. And that as a result has made in the past, I, as I was mentioning, I'd started new services, I'd started new things all the time in my business and then the novelty would wear off really quickly even after spending lots of money and time on different websites and go like this, this wasn't the thing. So now instead of just chasing that dopamine hit, that adrenaline of novelty, I have the ability to actually calm down and to consider things and consider the bigger picture. So I feel like I have more agency now. Like I hold the reins before. I didn't even know there were any reins. I was just running loose. I was running loose. And that makes it sound as though you know my whole life had fallen apart. That's not the case. But the way that I described my life before was that there was lots of flashes of brilliance and lots of valleys of mediocrity. I couldn't seem to get momentum. I know cognitively that I've done a lot of good work and helped a lot of people. I've got so many testimonials and recommendations on LinkedIn and my website that tell me that. I have beautiful clients that come back again and again, but that didn't allow my brain to accept it. I would always downplay that and be looking for the, the next thing and it had to be you know, bigger and better. I'm not doing enough not doing enough, you're not enough, you're not enough, was always there. That seems to be dissipating. And there is more of this acceptance piece, which is just, that is joyful. I was worried that the medication would change who I am. But what it's actually done is it's given me more access to who I am. I was only scratching the surface before because that's all you can do when you're going at 127 miles an hour every day. (laughs) And so the slowing down is allowing me to access more of who I am. And how has that changed your business? I mean, you've alluded to it a bit, but. It's changed it in the sense that I am, and this is early days because I only came back a month ago, you know, because I was on that sabbatical. But during the, the time I had out, I studied positive psychology. I've done a positive psychology diploma and I've just finished strengths accreditation. And what I've realized, again, with the ability to reflect is what I really do enjoy and what I'm really good at and an ability to decide 
that's what I'm going to pursue as opposed to what I think I should do. So it's eradicating the shoulds and recognizing I did your AOK course and loved it, really loved it, and recognize as a part of that how important our positive emotions are. Okay, and that I think I, I wouldn't have I, I knew that I love gold stars. <laughs> I knew that. And that and that if I if I don't get a gold star, I feel wounded. Um that's and I understand that's just part of the way that I'm wired. But it's what it's done, it's it's allowed me to see the importance of the things I'm most interested in, which was the positive psychology approach to the world and strengths. Knowing your your strengths your unrealized strengths, your realized strengths, your learned behaviors, your weaknesses, really understanding who you are, having that self-knowledge allows you to make better choices. So I am choosing still to work with business owners, but not as a long-term business coach, very much as someone who is has a fast brain, who connects ideas. I take people away on retreats and I love it. I love that interaction. What I don't like is long-term masterminds, which is what I used to run because that drains me. I can so relate to that, Angela. Does that make sense? Yes. And it makes so much sense for our brains because, again, we like the novelty, we like the fun, the new, the big impact. So we're really good starters, reasonably good middlers, but the, you know, following (laughs) up at the end, it's like, no, someone else needs to do this. (laughs) I need a day-to-day coach who can really get in and, you know, step by step at a time for a year. And we can make ourselves wrong for that, for thinking that we have to change. We have to be different. And it's like, no, I know what my strengths are now. Like I've got them right in front of me. And I look at those every day, you know, esteem builder, action, connector, awareness, growth, like self-belief improver and catalyst. Those are my, uh, my highest strengths. And if you look at the way that the definitions of those and the way they play out, running a long-term thing is never going to work for me. And therefore, it won't work for my clients. I'm not being as high as service. So I've rejigged the business to put everything under the umbrella of self-leadership because I really believe like having the self-knowledge, really knowing your values and your strengths and your habits and your support and then being able to think clearly, having cognitive flexibility and to be able to feel deeply, having emotional dexterity and then to be able to act with intention is what everybody needs. And it's this ADHD piece is like almost like the last piece of the puzzle but the biggest piece dropping into place and saying this is what is so important so do this in your business. Don't do the stuff that you thought you should. It's it's allowing myself to have an inner, um, it's like Googling inside and seeing what you want as opposed to trying to get validation and direction from outside as in how's everyone else doing it? It's like, no, <laughs> they're not going to work. You got to Google inside. And so that is the change in the business going forward, a real focus on strengths and self-leadership. So talk to us about positive psychology. Are you um, referring to, you know, the Martin Seligman School? Yeah, absolutely. Positive psychology. Okay, talk to us about that. So why do you think that's so important? Well, first of all, I guess it's important to define what positive psychology is and isn't Mm -hmm. because some people hear the the words go, oh, happy, happy, joy, joy, you know, Pollyanna, yada, yada, yada. But it's not that. What it's about, it's the science of thriving and there is a lot of science and evidence and research behind it. It's not just, you know, be happy. It's about working out when you are in 
a good zone, how do you maintain that? How do you maintain this positivity and this awareness and this connection with the world around you? Because when we're in that space, we tend to have more optimism, we see more opportunities, we're more open to connecting with people and ideas. So it's a good space to be in. We also recognize that negative emotions, just to use that label for a moment, they're a part of life. You can't avoid them. And we don't pretend that when something happens that, you know, you've got to just stay happy. But the idea is to not get stuck in those emotions, to have a way, like to feel them. In the recovery movement, we call it an expression as feel, deal, heal. So you can't push down emotions and ignore them because they'll pop back up just when you don't need them. So it's about recognizing and allowing them, but not getting stuck in them. So again, there is interventions and ways of bringing yourself back up. I touched on one lightly before when it was about your internal dialogue. So the whole approach of positive psychology is using your strengths and your values to inform your life. And so if you wrap your strengths and your values around the way that you do life, the, the career that you choose, the business that you build, the relationships that you nurture, all of that is going to improve your well-being overall. And well-being, there is scales that talk about well-being. Everyone's probably seen the wheel of life where you look at, you know, half a dozen different areas. What are your finances, your career, your relationships, your spirituality, your health and fitness? And you're looking at those and ranking them and deciding where you need to spend some attention to bring an area up and how can you do that from a positive thriving perspective with towards goals rather than away from goals so an example with my health and fitness it used to be you're fat you're lazy lose some damn weight <laughs> not very <laughs> inspirational yeah how did that work <laughs> and that's the that was the churn and burn you know the go hard or go home because that really horrible Helga voice where the positive psychology perspective is about creating a goal which you're moving towards and how it's generative as opposed to abusive, I guess. So my new positive goal is about creating flexibility, strength, and what's my other word? I can't remember the other word. There you go, working memory. I've lost the word. Doesn't matter. Flexibility and strength for the future as you age so that you can do more of the things. Oh, it's on my wall. My apologies, I've just found it. Vitality. I want physical, mental, and emotional strength, energy, and flexibility to live life to the full. That's the goal now versus you're fat, you're lazy, you've got to lose weight. So the, the, the one I just gave you with the vitality is a positively framed goal versus the one I had before. And one just has to look at the results to see that having the positive towards goal is far more inspirational, motivating, you're far more likely to succeed than having the other one. That literally, Tracy, it's the tip of the iceberg. But as an ADHD person, we need the positive positivity to fuel us. Negativity cuts us off at the knees. So there are approaches in so many other modules I could talk about that I've learned about that mean that your whole orientation to life is more optimistic and more motivated and has more energy attached to it. And that's the way I want to live. You know, this makes me think about, um, and I might have talked about this before, but uh, there was a study that was um, done, I think, about a year ago. And I was in the middle of my book, and so I was doing a deep dive, doing a bunch of research, and lo and behold, I, I found it. 
it was a Canadian study, and it talked about how 43% of people with ADHD are in excellent mental health. And I remember thinking, what the heck? You know, all we do is focus on the pathology. All of the ADHD organizations and websites and people, you know, that I that I follow and I get information from them daily. And no one was talking about this. All it was was about the pathology. And I thought, mm-hmm. why aren't we talking more about this? What are those 43% of the people that in excellent mental health doing to, you know, feel good, be happy, be successful. And why is no one talking about it? Bottom line. I couldn't understand that. And so again, it's the positive psychology. And I I think that's what was Martin Seligman's goal, right? He was so frustrated with the pathology of, you know, we're just studying, you know, why people are sick. And and I mean, I, I get that, you know, we have to study that, but why aren't we also studying what are the people doing that are in really great mental health and feel really good? And why aren't we copying and, you know, finding out what they're doing? Exactly. It makes so much sense. And I think about what, when you were speaking, saying the 43%, and I was thinking, so why is that? Because I would consider myself to have good mental health. You know, it's, it's a really important part of my world. And I think some of our inherent ADHD strengths contribute to that. Now, I'm not, I'm not downplaying the fact that it can take us to some dark places, but we are so resilient because we've had to be. We are problem solvers because we've had to be. We're curious. We're joyful in lots of different ways. And I think a lot of that is because we are often, you know, chasing the rainbow. It's like, oh, bright, shiny. And one of the things that, that there's a great book that's out at the moment, um, which is, is covered um, a longitudinal study of well-being in America. It's been running since 1938. And I think you probably heard about it. I can't remember the name of the book offhand, but I've got it on my shelf. But what they came to the conclusion was, was that relationships, we know this, relationships is the number one thing to keep us in good mental, physical, emotional um, health. And we're thinking, so that's a positive thing. Okay. And one of the things that I've seen in myself is that it embarrasses the hell out of my kids, but so be it. I talk to strangers. I call it everyday encouragement. I connect with as many people as I can on a daily basis. And in positive psychology, they talk about everyday acts of kindness. Like if you actually bring that into the world, if you see someone that's got a lovely hat, tell them, you know, that color looks great on you, et cetera. And I don't mean be disingenuous, you know, mean it. Look for opportunities, little micro opportunities to connect with other people. And this study showed that those actually improve your mental and physical and emotional well-being. I literally took the study to the kids and went, look, vindication, vindication. (laughs) And those little micro connections lift our spirits and they put this ripple of positivity out into the world because that person you interact with, how do you think they'll interact with the next person that they come across? So there's so many nuggets. We're paying it forward, right? Yes. And it's, it's all just energy. So exactly. the more positive exactly. energy we can throw out there, other people are going to get it. It's going to bounce off of them. They're going to pay it forward just to, you know, I mean, it's the funnest thing. You know, you go yeah. through a Starbucks drive through <laughs> Years ago, I remember I went through a Starbucks drive through I paid for the person behind me and the person behind him. And it ended up being a chain because I had dropped them off at school. The people at the Starbucks knew who I was. And so when I came back that afternoon, they had told me that I think it was a 41 people did that. Oh, I love that. That You know, it's a ripple effect. 
Yes, exactly. And the ripple effect, we just we can have invisible ripples going on around us as well, just by the way that we show up. That's such a tangible one that you have. But I think we often also um, don't appreciate the positive impacts that we can have because so often our Helga is louder than our inner sage, you know, that that voice which encourages us. And that's why I think it's incredibly important for us to be aware of that inner dialogue and to start switching it as often as possible. I love it. I love it. So I was on your website mm. and I saw something there that I just thought, oh my gosh, this is so ADHD. Um, <laughs> one of your clients, I guess, Melanie, who's the founder of a company, you had asked her, what do I do? Because you were you know, I guess we find it hard. You said this at the beginning to, first of all, even know what we do, right? But then to put it into yeah. words because we're not experiencing what they're experiencing. And she said, you are able to very quickly conceptualize the big picture of any given situation and visualize all of the dots, connected or not, that come together to create the big picture. You then assess each dot at lightning speed, it appears to me, and hone straight in on the dots that need the highest priority attention. And then you take these high priority dots and you help me, Melanie, gain clarity by asking just the right questions and providing invaluable ideas, suggestions, framework, and solutions that you extract from your vast wisdom bank. And I read that and I was like, that so sounds like the ADHD brain. <laughs> oh, that is, that is hilarious. You know, when I said at the beginning about the person who works with neurodiverse clients and who went, yeah, I've seen some of the traits in you. That was her. She was on a retreat that I that I ran um, a week ago or two weeks ago down in the Southern Highlands, a beautiful part of, of um, New South Wales, if anyone makes it over here. And I actually asked her that question, Tracy. She said, that was the most amazing experience. And, I, and like, what you do is incredible. And I'm like, what do I actually do? <laughs> and then she said that in the car and I went, oh my God, that's like, yeah, that that's, could you write that down for me? And she did. She um, sent me a Facebook message when she'd got back to New Zealand because she flew over for the retreat. And I looked at that and went, no one has been able to articulate what it is that I, that I do. Like it, it just happens. And it was actually, you asked me before, how did the diagnosis help me in the business? Because I thought I was over helping business people, but what I was over was the long-term connection. When mm. I went down and ran that retreat, the first one I'd run in seven months, I was, you know, three days I was on all the time. We have three nights there and, and we do lots of stuff. But I was tired at the end, but I was not drained. And that's the biggest sign for us. When we are working in our strengths, although we can be physically tired, it's a very different feeling than being drained. And I think that that emotional compass or barometer, we need to be, especially as ADHDers, we need to be very attuned to that. How am I feeling? Like to, yes. to try and ground back in using mindfulness, which is a big part of positive psychology as well, to be in the present, not past pondering or future tripping, which I was doing all the time, but to actually have the discernment to be in the present and be aware of what we're thinking and feeling so that we can make be at choice and make better decisions from there. And that to me is the essence of self-leadership, which wouldn't I wouldn't be able to do it without the awareness that, well, I was doing it, but I, I wasn't doing it in this very present way, 
without the diagnosis and the support structures that are now coming into place to help me be the best version of me so I can help others. And that feels really exciting. So that anger and sadness that was associated with the diagnosis, that's dissipated. Now there's anticipation. Because one part of my brain, the Helga, was saying, well, you better get it right now. you got no excuse. Yeah. <laughs> that's, the nasty, that's the dark side. And then the bright side was like, wow, imagine what you can do now that you have the support that you've always needed. That's the philosophy that I want to take forward rather than the old Helga philosophy. <laughs> Absolutely. So you had mentioned um, early on that uh, you struggled with addiction. And mm. I'd love to know from you how it shaped you in the most positive of ways. Oh, thank you for for going from that angle. (laughs) So, um, again, this is something that I have an understanding of with the help of that beautiful narrative psychologist who's helped me look at the stories that I've told myself for years. I struggled with relationships, like with just peers when I was younger and carried this feeling of like there's just something wrong with me. I'm just like, you know. A bit weird, and I never Wait, understood stop, stop. why. Hold on a second. I, I want to yeah. know more about that. Oh, weird okay. in what way? <laughs> I just i i couldn't seem to do. I couldn't seem to fit in, or as Brené Brown would say, belong. I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. I always felt as though I was being judged. I was awkward. I was. I had a lot of bullying and ridicule, and 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 it was really uncomfortable. And that was very internalized. Unfortunately, my parents, I mean, I acknowledge that they did the best that they can, that Mm -hmm. they could. They had very rough upbringings themselves, but they didn't have the emotional capacity to help me navigate my way through the sort of pain that I was having. And I discovered alcohol at 15 and it took away the worry. It was like the elixir. So I don't care what you think of me. I'm not worried about what you're saying about me. I'm just in my little pink cloud and everything feels fine. So as they say in the recovery circles, if you find something that can take away the pain, why would you not use that? And there's also a saying that says, that's the thing that saved you. Clever girl, you found something that saved you at the time, which to someone who hasn't had an addiction problem might seem really reprehensible to make that sort of comment. But it did because the psychic pain that I was in of this just not belonging. I had a couple of friends, but I just always seemed to be saying the wrong thing and was just, you know, peers and teens can be can be cruel <laughs> um, for sure. And so I... I was what they call for a long time, and I'll, I'll use the um, the wording quite happily, a high-functioning alcoholic. So, you know, held down great jobs, got qualifications, you know, got married, kids, stepkids, everything, you know, houses, cars, started a business, bought an office, had staff, all of the things. But the thing that was helping me cope with the voice inside that kept telling me that I was crap was the alcohol. Now, fortunately, at 37, my family had a bit of an intervention and I went off and I went to um, rehab for a very short amount of time, five days. I had two small children. That's all I could fit in. But it stuck. I was challenged to think of the world in a different way. I, I went to AA meetings and it's been 16 years now with your know, unbroken sobriety, which has just been an absolute gift. But there was a lot of work involved in doing that. And my psychologist has helped me understand and appreciate How do you feel now about your addiction knowing that you had untreated ADHD and you managed to get sober with untreated ADHD when addiction is such 
a part of ADHD and I, I didn't know that and it actually made me alter my identity because I'd seen myself as someone who had been weak, who managed to find, you know, a solution, but it was the solution that did the work. It wasn't me. It was I couldn't have done it without X, Y, Z, you know, AA and the group. That's true, but I had to do the work. And as a result of that, I have, in terms of the good side that's come from it, massive compassion for other people. Yeah. a total lack of judgment. I understand that everybody is an iceberg, as in what we see walking around and what's actually under the surface. So Maya Angelou has a quote that we do the best that we can until we know better, then we do better. And that managed to be a balm for a lot of the shame that was there because addiction is a very shame-based thing, especially for women. Yes. And 16 years ago when I got sober, it wasn't talked about. There wasn't, you know, um, over here we have sober in the country and hello Sunday morning and all of these movements and, you know, alcohol-free um, shops are, drop, are dropping up or jumping up all over the place. And there's so many books and stories and the stigma, while still there, has softened a lot. But not when I first got sober. It was like, oh, my God, don't talk about this. It's terribly shameful. So that quote and great support got me through. But the result that it has now, yes, is the compassion. It's the ability to hold space for other people. It's the ability to build people's esteem, to help them see who they really are because addictions and other, and it's not just alcohol, there's all sorts of behaviours that we can do compulsively to soothe ourselves. And there is not a single addiction on this planet that doesn't have some sort of trauma at the base of it. There just isn't. Yes. You know, that is just the way it is. And so helping people understand that it's not a it's not it's what happened to them, not who they are. So also on your website, I saw what you're reading, which I've been talking about it for the last couple podcast episodes. Oh <laughs> and yeah. It's right into what you're talking about, right? The myth of normal, Gabor yes, Mate. Absolutely. Yeah. It's an amazing um, book. And that's exactly what he talks about, right? Mm. And I've got, you know, absolute firsthand experience of this. But in, until we have these conversations, like you can't, like Brené Brown talks about shame. If you leave it in the, in the closet, it mm -hmm. thrives on darkness and secrecy. If you bring it out into the light, it cannot live. And I spoke about after the first probably five years of sobriety, the shame had dissipated. The shame was sitting back in the back row now rather than being front and center. So I talked about it. I let go of my anonymity and I was happy to talk about it. And the reason I did that was because I thought that someone with a drinking problem was an old guy, homeless, with a brown paper bag, in an overcoat, you know, in a park on a bench. That was my understanding of a, someone with a drinking problem or alcoholism. It wasn't me in the suburbs with a couple of kids in a nice house. So until we hear about it, we can't get the freedom that comes from identification and recognizing that I am not a bad person who needs to get good. I am a sick person who needs to get well. And there is a world of difference between those two, you know, perspectives. And so, yeah, I, I love the fact that there is so much more available to people to recognize that there's, you know, when we use our strengths, when we connect with other people, you know, the sky's the limit. I understand I have privilege. 
I'm really fortunate where I live and, and the support that yes. I have. But still that internal landscape is where the foundations need to be built, not, you know, not with the external validation. The self-worth needs to come from the inside. And conversations like you have, Tracy, to to open that window of possibility are such an important part of that internal journey that we've got to go through, especially as ADHD is. Yeah, I mean, we all need to know that there are people just like just us like that are us. struggling with the same things, right? Absolutely. And outwardly, like you said, you may look in and think, oh, she's just got it so all together. Well, <laughs> not always, right? Yeah, look at those little little duck paddles underwater. Right. Mm. Exactly. Exactly. So, mm. Angela, what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? I think there's a few things. I think one of the most important things is community being around other people who also are wired a little bit differently. We can't exit the neurotypical world. We've got, to, we've got to live in it happily. But having that connection with other people who see the world in a little bit the same way as you gives you that like, ability to, to breathe out. And I think the embracing it, allowing yourself to go through that cycle, that emotional cycle, it's almost like the cycle of, of grief, that's really important to feel all the feelings and then to get active and find the combination, the recipe that is going to best support you. And that may mean medication. It may mean a naturopath who helps you, you know, fuel your body better. It may mean exercise. It can mean a lot of different things. But we deserve to have that support now that we know that there is a challenge for us. It's not, I know there's some philosophies that say that it's just an absolute gift and there is some brilliant things about it that I really appreciate. And as you often say, some of your greatest achievements that you um, ascertain have come about because of your ADHD and I feel the same way. But there's also the other side of the coin and so we deserve like any challenge to have a recipe of support that allow us to open the door to be the, you know, the people we've always been meant to be. So that to me, it's looking for the supports that work for you. And the last one is being able to hit the pause button. If you're special, if you're the <laughs> impulsive type, hit yes. the bloody pause button, give yourself some space before you make a decision because that might actually save you some heartache. <laughs> Absolutely. Those are really good. So do you have a number one ADHD workaround? Hmm. It is starting my day with things that bring me joy and delight. If I do that and put myself into that positive frame and that positive uh, mindset, then I can get the right things done. So for me, it's music. There's particular music I play. There's particular oils I burn. And there's the self-talk that I add in, you know, in terms of this is going to be a good day. What what do we get to do today? It sounds, it sounds a little cliche, but it works for me because it puts me in a good space. So I start with a couple of tasks that are easy and fun. And then that's got me into that positive space, which I need so that I can keep powering on. I love it. Angela, where can people find you if they want to know more about you and what you do? Well, there's a couple of great places to connect up with me. One of them is on LinkedIn, and it's very easy to find me there. I'm the only Raspis in the world, I think. And then secondly, there's my website, which is www.angelaraspis, R-A-S for Sydney, P for Patrick, A-S-S for Sydney.com. And in there, Tracy, there's actually a couple of things I would love to offer your audience that I think may be helpful. So if there's anyone here who either is thinking of starting a business or 
or has one that just doesn't feel like a great fit for them any longer and they want to make some changes, I actually wrote a wee book about that. It was my lockdown project. It's called Your Next Chapter, Ditch Your Doubt, Own Your Worth and Build the Business You Really Want. I'm really proud of it. It was one of those things that I was always wanting to do and it just took a while till I had the confidence myself to put my ideas down in print. So on the website, just under where it says book in the navigation, I'd love to offer a $10 um, discount voucher for your listeners. If when they go and pop the paperback into the shopping cart, if they use the discount code SMARTBOOK, that will take $10 off for them. And the other thing that I think is really helpful that we've talked about quite a bit during this conversation is knowing your strengths. It makes such a difference to the way that we can approach the world. And I felt so strongly about that, that I went and got accredited and being able to do that, the Capfinity Strengths Finder for my clients and this incredibly rich report that we debriefed together, going through realized strengths and unrealized strengths and learned behaviors and weaknesses and, and the real blend there that we can work on together so that you can start to to redesign the way that you're living and working. And so that to do that profile and debrief with me, I'd love to offer a, a $50 voucher for your people again to be able to use. And if they go to the checkout on the strengths page, which is under work with me, and you'll see the strengths profile, and they just use the code smart strengths, then that will take $50 off the um, investment in a strengths profile as well. So yeah, I'd just love to be able to offer those because I think they're both really useful. And I appreciated very much the opportunity to, um, to share my ideas with you guys. Okay, so smart strengths is the code for to work with you to discover your strengths. Yep. And smart book is the code to get ten dollars off of the book. Perfect. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Angela. I just really appreciate you spending time with us here today. Uh, it was it was a privilege. It was a delight. I knew it was going to be fun, and it's just having these deeply connected conversations that are going to help other people are so important. And so I really admire and appreciate the work that you do in the world and and these opportunities that you provide us, Tracy. So thank you. Absolutely, and all of uh, the codes and the information, the website, the LinkedIn will be in our show notes. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you liked this episode with Angela, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. And you know what? Your reviews really do help. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me over at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.